The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. This is going to be one of those shows where I have so many things I want to talk about that not any one of them is going to get the actual time that it deserves. I'm going to do my best to try to keep that from happening while also knowing full well that I'm going to lose that battle. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, everybody. I'm Dan Baspris. It's Monday. It's a new week, but who's counting? Yeah, that's right. Fart noise on air because that's what this is like right now. It's tough, man. Existence is difficult at the moment. I continue to think that the best course of action is just to sort of close your eyes, put your head down, and every once in a while kind of like open your left eye just a little bit to see if anything's changed. And if it has, cool. And if it hasn't, just close them back up and keep pushing forward because that's what we're in right now. And this is a podcast about sports. This is a reprieve from the weirdness of life right now. But at the same time, we're all in it together. And it's weird. It's very weird and it's very hard. There, And I think each of us is dealing with the, the difficulties in a different way. For me personally, the hardest part of all of this is that I have no... I have no time to let my brain relax between the COVID, the newborn, the toddler being home 24 hours a day. I have no opportunity for that. And for some people, that's going outside. For me, it's the opposite. It's being quiet and alone. And that may never happen again based on the way things are going right now. But uh, we're healthy. We're good. We're, we're pushing along. I hope you guys are all healthy as well. I hope... None of you have had to deal with any particular scares or any loss during all of this time. And uh, again, we'll just sort of keep putting one foot in front of the other. Shout out to the guys over at Hoopball continuing to do a wonderful work. This is uh, a Hoopball presentation, this being Fantasy NBA Today. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball is at Hoopball Fantasy. Hoop-ball.com is the website. What's going on over there right now? Uh, our buddy Steve Vidovich put out a piece on Karis Levert. That's the most recent article dropping over at Hoopball. The 76ers are actually the most recent team uh, the season so far. You guys know how that goes. It's uh, our iteration of the postmortem. Uh, Brandon Marcus welcomed Andrew Greif of the LA Times to the Hoopball Clippers podcast. Uh, our good buddy Josh Millman put out a season so far in the Brooklyn Nets that we talked about late last week. And content continues to emerge which is fun. It's great. Should be a Hoopball Lakers episode dropping here in the not-too-distant future. We got a Hoopball Gaming episode coming soon. Friend of the show, Devin Ellington, is uh, working on a piece on the NFL, so that should be cool. Something going on over in the sports betting world. And uh, actually spoke earlier today to the host of the Hoopball Kings podcast, Damian Barling. He's got an episode dropping this week as well. So uh, a lot of good stuff going on still at Hoopball, in addition to the the stuff coming out weekly from Lyle Swithenbank at Hoopball Pels, Greg Mraz at Hoopball Bulls, and uh, waiting on our buddies over at Hoopball Nets to uh, to throw something into the mix as well. So thank you to the guys at Hoopball for keeping things going. Content of all shapes and sizes still available for your listening pleasure. Uh, Korean baseball starts tonight. 
Not sure if you guys have heard uh, that that's happening. Not sure if you care, but it's live. I believe it's on at 10 Pacific time, but I might be wrong about that. It might be 10 Eastern. Regardless, it'll be on ESPN tonight. Actual live real baseball with some former uh, minor and major leaguers that have uh, ventured over to Korea to play ball. Plenty of, obviously, Korean-born players as well. But it's real live sports, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not playing it for fantasy purposes. I'm not betting it. Someone is. Maybe our guys over to Ball Gaming will get that stuff going on. But it's a real, actual live sport happening on May the 4th, Star Wars Day. That's when it all comes back. Sounds like some small-scale things will be opening up around California. I think other parts of the country may be getting very little incremental improvements here. I believe uh, retail establishments are doing pickup, something like that. Is that coming later this week or next week? We're still hearing that NBA facilities are hoping, they're hoping to open things up to individual players sanitized by the end of this week as well. So these are very small baby steps. But if we take one of those every week, we just start to inch our way back towards normalcy in some tiny fashion. Thank you to everybody that continues to listen to uh, the podcast, even in these weird times. I know it's not all of you right now because we don't have any live sports happening. And so, you know, we're not winning you any money in your basketball leagues. That said, this is a really important time of year for taking stock of what we did and did not do during the 2019-2020 regular season so far, or if it's done, then as a whole, and getting ourselves better prepared for next season. And so that's why we do these particular types of shows. We have these, what we call them, lessons of the year shows, which is what today's is going to be. We're also going to be talking about Last Dance episodes 5 and 6, which aired yesterday on ESPN, the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls. 97-98 documentary that covers basically the rise of the Chicago Bulls and everything that happened uh, since Jordan was drafted and, and even a little bit before that into the NBA. Those are Monday shows. We're going to be talking to individual hoop ball experts. We talked to Josh Millman last week, talked about his mock draft and some of his lessons. And then whenever we don't have some other thing going on, we'll break down a team. We did the Charlotte Hornets on Friday. That's our most recent episode prior to this one. We'll keep exploring the Southeast Conference most likely tomorrow, although, again, we're sort of taking things day by day in terms of guests and content. But today, we've got Lesson 3 out of 5 on our Lesson of the Year segment. As, again, mentioned before, uh, Last Dance breakdown on the most recent two episodes, and that'll hopefully get you through this Monday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. If you have not been listening weekly... Last week on Monday, we talked about pivoting to a slightly more aggressive stance in our draft strategy, which I know is super weird because I've become known as, you know, the guy who drafts the oldest team in fantasy sports, and that's not, I mean, it's a well-deserved moniker at this point. But last week, we talked about getting into chance-taking, and I don't even want to call it that because... It's not like we're going full roll of the dice stuff. We're just talking about when you get... Previously, we talked about breaking down how close Yahoo's full season pre-ranks are to the final ranks. And generally, when you get to that 70, 75, 80 range, you start to see the pre-ranks and the final ranks diverge aggressively. Meaning, Yahoo might have a guy pre-ranked 
75 and he might finish 145. And it's not that uncommon to see that happen in that territory. The misses are by three or more rounds in general, on average, once you get to that point. Now, even though our our historical research suggests that in that 50 to 70 range, the misses aren't quite as significant, more like one and a half to two rounds. What we're noticing, maybe this year more than others because there was a lot of movement, or maybe it's just the nature of the beast at this point, but if your guys aren't falling to you, and and we talked about it being more like around pick 60, and, and I used one of my drafts as an example last Monday. I had eight guys in my queue with 11 picks gumming, coming to my selection at the end of the fifth round of that draft. I was, the, I was on the turn. I was late in almost every draft I was in this year. This one, I was full on the turn. So I had the 12th pick. I had 11 guys in my queue, or eight guys in my queue with 11 picks to go. I, I set it up at the beginning of the round. And they all vanished. And then instead of going to my next guy, which, as it turns out, was sort of the next group. You guys know I like to put my guys into certain buckets. I, I grabbed at someone else who was, at least according to the big box Yahoo pre-ranks, falling. I did this twice, being on the turn. And I've been upset about it ever since. Even though I ended up with Jonathan Isaac, who had, for a while was one of the best picks in fantasy, I also ended up with Julius Randle, who was one of the worst picks in fantasy for uh, most of the season, although he did turn it up a little bit later in the year. The reason I'm so upset about it is not because I split a pair. I, I don't expect to always hit my picks at 60 and 61. I think I expect to hit them certainly more than 50% of the time. The reason I'm upset is because it was a panic move. All of the guys that I had targeted as, in general, dudes that I expected to fall to me, falling stars, we call them, the Dan Bespris old man squad, however you want to phrase it, it's generally dudes that are a little bit more boring that fall farther than they should and have an easy path to get to or beat their ADP. Those guys all dried up right before my pick, you know, the likes of Rob Covington and Al Horford and Brooke Lopez and Kevin Love and Tobias Harris and Malcolm Brogdon and Jonas Valanciunas. And all of a sudden, I was looking at a board where I had a couple of guys that I was targeting in the next group more in that 75-85 range. Guys like Gordon Hayward, I was hoping to get closer to 75. Kelly Oubre Jr., I was hoping to get closer to 75 if I was going to be drafting those guys. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, I was hoping to get more in the 75 range. And instead of pivoting, even Danilo Gallinari, who's a little bit more of a falling type, instead of pivoting to those guys, I looked at the draft board. The Cardinal Sin, and this was last week's lesson. The week before that, I don't want to get into this too much. I, I think this is it, it's fun and kind of important to, to track what our lessons have been at this point. Uh, we, we've had so many over the, the three and change years of this podcast. It's really about taking stock, okay? And, and for last year, and, and I thought that one that we talked about last week was pretty interesting because it was very much against the usual grain of what I'm talking about. Lesson one, of course, was really paying closer attention to usage and not getting as cute. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a different tack. That'll be the second thing we talk about on the podcast. First, let's talk about the last dance. 
Episodes 5 and 6 airing on uh, Sunday, yesterday, the 3rd of May on ESPN, and they were, as usual, fantastic. I don't think that there's... an uh, the, the only issue with The Last Dance from a content standpoint on a podcast is if you're not a Bulls show, which Greg doing a wonderful job of, this is not a Bulls show, it's hard to argue that you should spend 5, 10, 15 minutes breaking down some topic that was covered on the show because that was their job. They broke it down in a more detailed manner than it had been done before. In any event, a few things that I thought were kind of interesting in these episodes, and if you guys want to talk about it, we can always do so uh, in a back and forth on Twitter. Again, that's at Dan Bespris. Number one, uh, the quote from Kobe Bryant I thought was really cool. Also, both equal parts... Uh, really nice and also really sad to see him in this documentary, but for him to say, basically, look, I always hated those conversations where people wanted to compare me to Michael and say who would win one-on-one because everything I am, I everything I do, I got from Michael. You know, he said, I, you know, he's talking about studying his moves and picking his brain, and we heard it from Michael Jordan during uh, his eulogy for Kobe Bryant, of how they became almost like a big brother, little brother relationship. But Kobe basically saying, look, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have won those five championships in LA if not for Michael Jordan because of what he imparted. So I thought that was pretty neat. I don't I don't have a whole lot to add to that. Just kind of an emotional moment early in episode five. And then it broke down it became a little bit more of a chronology where some of the earlier episodes of The Last Dance had been focused on key players. Obviously, Michael Jordan, he's going to be covered at great length in all of the episodes, but there was kind of a Scottie Pippen episode, a Phil Jackson episode, a Dennis Rodman episode that aired during the first uh, kind of, it was like two and a half of the first four episodes were dedicated to kind of breaking down some of Michael's teammates. And then late in episode four, and I thought stretching really through episode six, and I don't know if this is going to continue next week, it became a little bit more of a predictable storytelling in that last week we heard about the Bulls' triumph over the Pistons, finally getting over the bad boy's hump and his bad blood with Isaiah Thomas, which was mentioned as they they touched upon the Dream Team, the 92 Dream Team, when pros joined up to participate in the Olympics for the first time uh, and and bring home that gold medal, and Isaiah Thomas being left off the team, the, the documentary doing a nice job of pointing out how Pretty much all of the key superstars on that dream team didn't get along with Isaiah Thomas, but Michael Jordan was getting blamed for it. I don't know what the actual answer is to that whole thing. But also into championships two and three for the Bulls, the uh, stories about Michael Jordan and gambling in Atlantic City and on the golf course and, and whether it was nearly as pronounced as it was kind of blown up to be. Uh, the Sam Smith book, on the Bulls, at detailing how Jordan's teammates weren't super thrilled with him. I mean, if this all sounds like you Angelinos, if you're hearing about some of that stuff and thinking Kobe Bryant, yeah, I mean, there's the the, the parallels are completely uncanny. Uh, the battles with the Knicks, the final battle with the Suns, and then Jordan kind of talking about how it became really hard to be Michael Jordan. And I can't say that I fully get it because 
I'm not famous. When I walk outside, nobody gives a crap. The dog is usually pretty thrilled, but no one else, no one else gives a crap. Uh, and you, you never, you don't think about it, but the, the documentary I thought did a really neat job of illustrating how literally every time that Michael Jordan was outside of his hotel room, he was on. And that's an area where I do have a little bit of empathy. I feel like as a human being, I am on at a greater percentage of my day than other people. And it's not because I have to be. It's just in my nature to kind of want to be uh, gregarious and outgoing and I, I want to entertain. And when I do shows, I want to be at full energy all the time. And that's just a little tiny sliver of what someone like Michael Jordan would, would go through. That's like one minute. My whole day is like one minute of energy for him. And, and he's doing this for hours when he steps outside his home to get on the bus, to go to the hotel, to go to the arena, to leave the arena. He was, and, and this is easy to forget because, I mean, this was 92, 93 we're talking about now. This is almost 30 years ago. It's easy to forget what an insane global phenomenon Michael Jordan was at this point. And I really didn't get it when it was happening the first go-round because I was 10 years old. As a 10-year-old, you're fully on the other side of that ledger if you're into basketball. As a 10-year-old who was into baseball at the time, I knew the Be Like Mike song, but I wasn't really paying attention to the NBA. I didn't know who won the... I mean, I, I, someone I'm sure told me the Bulls had won a bunch of championships, but I didn't really care. I was watching Dodger games. I was putzing around. What was I, a fourth grader? Something like that? I wasn't a basketball fan, and I've said this before, until real, I think it was during the years that Jordan was playing baseball that I started to get into basketball a little bit more as a Laker fan, and they weren't very good <laughs> during that window either. Joked about that with Josh Millman last week. But I, it's just really fun to watch these stories and watch how they develop and the emotions and the tensions and this, this sort of rise and fall of everything. And I, I do feel like I'm learning an awful lot. And while I don't think it's the greatest podcast fodder to, to break it all down here after it happens, I do think it's cool to talk about it. So hit me up on Twitter. I'm going to try to remember to put out a few tweets today just on a few things that I thought were kind of interesting from those two episodes. And uh, maybe we can kick around some ideas about that. Last thing on the show uh, about The Last Dance was Michael Jordan wearing his first Jordans to Madison Square Garden when he thought he was done in 98 and talking about how his feet were just bleeding into his socks, but he played through it anyway. And thinking about what a, how completely insane it is, how tough these guys are. I, sometimes I wear shoes for too long and my, so, my toes start to get sore and I whine like a baby all day and this dude is playing with bleeding feet. Athletes are crazy, man. Athletes are totally nuts. Cool story, by the way, from Ramona Shelburne uh, over at ESPN today as well, comparing Kobe Bryant and uh, sort of reflecting on his statements during the, the Last Dance documentary in Episode 5. But let's get into fantasy stuff, because we're, uh, we're some 17, 18 minutes into the podcast, and boy, how the hell did that happen? What have we even been talking about yet? I want to get to Lesson 3 on today's show. And Lesson 3... I thought we'd approach the, this learning curve, and everything sort of traces back to fantasy draft day because you build, 
I mean, you really like 80% of what's going on with your team happens because of what you do on in your draft. We have a couple of goals when it comes to that. And I'm pulling that number out of the sky a little bit. So it's sort of a Barney Stinson move from how I met your mother. I'm just making up a percentage. But the majority of what happens with your fantasy team is tied to what happens in your fantasy draft. Because, and, and you might make some trades among first-round picks, and, and maybe that can, can swing fortunes a little bit. But for the most part, the guys that are having the greatest impact on your team are guys you draft in the first four or five rounds. And that all happens on draft day. And pretty rarely do teams go out and quickly move guys that they drafted inside the top, I don't know, call it 45 or 50. It, ha- it, it definitely happens. You know, I'm not going to say that, it's, it's, that it never occurs. But, you know, for instance, this season uh, I traded my first round pick in one of my money leagues. I traded my second round pick in one of my money leagues. So it does happen, but in the other four or five leagues that I was paying really close attention to, I, I kept my first couple round picks. No, you know what? Scratch that. I actually traded my first round pick in two. Interesting twist. That's more than usual. So even though it feels like I did it a lot, one of them happened relatively early in the year. The other one happened around the trade deadline. So it really only had a a significant impact on my team in one of those two situations. The other one was sort of a medium size impact. Regardless, what I did on draft day still mattered because I moved those guys for other high impact players. What I think we'd like to do as we sort of fine-tune our drafting ability is make it so that even more of our team can be built out on draft day. Well, how do we do that? Number one, we abide by a lot of the things that we've learned over the last 20 years and what we've talked about the last three and change years on this podcast. Things like letting value guys fall to you because they're out there and they're and they're coming in spades in rounds two, three, four, and five in particular. The number of value guys in those rounds is astronomical. Vooch in round two. And some of these value guys, by the way, are guys that we're talking about as just safe picks that are not blowing up your team in any of these rounds. Jimmy Butler, pretty good value in round two. Uh, before getting traded, Andre Drummond, really good value round two. The guys that were really falling fell past round two because they just weren't, <laughs> I mean, to fall, you have to not be drafted super high. So then you're the guy looking at guys in round three, uh, like a Clint Capella, like a Chris Paul, we've talked about a thousand times. Round four, you're seeing guys like LaMarcus Aldridge, Jason Tatum, Chris Middleton, Kyle Lowry. These guys were all falling this year. Rob Covington falling into the fifth round. Brooke Lopez falling into the sixth. Valanchunas sometimes into the sixth round. So these falling, Tobias Harris, well, you don't need every, you don't need the list of all of the old man squad guys. That's not what this episode is about. The point I'm making is we've built up our team with a whole bunch of really interesting value plays. We have a really nice foundation that, as we've talked about before, every year puts us in position to finish inside the top four. 
right? If you don't completely biff the first three or four rounds of your draft, if you, if you make sure that those guys hit or get close to hitting, you're pretty much guaranteed to be in the top half of your league, right? If you get half-decent picks, if your first three picks are half-decent, you're going to finish in the top half of your league. The only league where I'm... Well, you know what? I was actually sixth, so it was still top half, but barely. The only one where I didn't was a keeper league where my third-round pick was Otto Porter Jr., and he basically didn't play a game all year. That's the only one. Pretty much every other league... I'm happy with my first three picks, anywhere ranging anywhere from satisfied to quite happy, and those teams have all been very good. And I think all of those teams will end up taking home some kind of money, depending on how leagues are sorted out post-COVID. But what about the next step? Well, the next step in making sure you clear that top half is to, one would think, get into the top third meaning move from top six to top four. How do you get into the top four? Well, you make sure you get something sexy to solid out of rounds four through six. They don't all have to hit. They don't all have to hit big, but they have to be pretty good. And the one, and we've talked about it before, the one situation where my team wasn't as great there was keeper format and, and Otto Porter and stashing a Victor Oladipo. That's a bad example. Go to another spot where my team's generally in pretty good shape and you can find mostly successes. LaMarcus Aldridge was round four. We've talked about how I whiffed my way into Jonathan Isaac somehow in round five. And then Julius Randle was a, a fat misfire in round six. But if again, if we had used our lesson from last week, round five most likely would have been Kelly Oubre, round six probably would have been Shea or Gordon Hayward. So then you're talking about more hits. But what about the last piece of this puzzle? Now you're in the top third. You're basically going to win some money if you're even paying some attention to your league. Because if you're hitting on your first six picks, you're probably going to win money. How do you get to that top throne? Well, number one, like we talked about, getting a little bit more aggressive in that 65 to 75 range certainly helps with that. But also, you kind of have two other paths forward, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can do them both. One of them we're always going to do. One of them we're always going to have success because one of them is almost always about effort. And we're never going to shirk away from effort because I'm always going to buy NBA League Pass and I'm always going to spend... Way too much time watching games on TV. My family will continue to hate me for the amount of time they have to watch Hornets-Wizards games because they start before all the other ones on TV in this house. But we're always going to find the guys on the waiver wire. That's path one. But again, path, paths one and two, you can actually do them both. Just because we're taking path one all the time, hunting value, looking for guys with fantasy stat sets that, that fit our build, doesn't mean we can't do path two. I should also mention that there's kind of a path three, which basically involves out-maneuvering 
your competition, and we're always going to do that too. But path one, you can you can lump path three and path one together. That one's just effort. We're going to dig up the free agents. We're going to play smart in our head-to-head leagues. We're going to attack categories in our roto leagues. Fine. Effort. We're never going to we're never going to lose that battle. The battle that we sometimes lose, and this is what I want to focus on this week in our in our lesson of the week. The battle we sometimes lose is what do we do after round six? What do we do after round six? And I want to talk about this in two stages. There's round six takes you to pick 72, generally. We're talking 12 team leagues right now. Between 72 and about 90, as we've talked about before, the rate of hits is still okay. So basically rounds seven, eight, uh, excuse me, rounds six. I've lost track of the number I'm talking about here. Uh, part of rounds, <laughs> I can't do the math here, man. It's round seven and half of round eight. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm not sleeping enough. The rate of hit in that range is still pretty good. Looking at one of my more competitive leagues, uh, guys that hit in there, Alonzo Ball, uh, Terry Rozier was an okay one. Demonis Sabonis was good. Larry Nance, Marcus Gasol, when he was healthy, was playing better. Aaron Gordon was ramping up. DeJounte Murray, Hassan Whiteside was a big hit. Derek Favors was decent. Ricky Rubio, Freddie Van Vliet, Jeremy Lamb. So a lot, of, a lot of pretty good names in there. I don't know what I just said. Eight, nine names, so like half, basically. But as you start to move towards the 100 mark, you see that percentage drop from about half of the picks panning out to about a quarter. And then as you move past 100, you get into this weird, like, one out of every seven or eight picks is actually hitting. And that's the area I want to talk about today. Next week, you can pretty much bank, by the way, on next Monday, we're going to talk about that 70 to 100 range of building out our team and how to draft in that neighborhood. By the way, uh, spoiler alert, upside hunting. That's still a thing in the 70 to 100 range. Once you get past 100, upside hunting is extremely overrated. Because there, you know, isn't much of it anymore. Just as a point of reference, my 12-team leagues generally have 15 rounds. They're, They're deep benches. So we go 180 deep. I want to kind of look at today basically the last 60 picks in that league. So pick 120 on. And if you really want, you could even go a little bit earlier and lump in the 10th round as well and say pick 108 until the end of the draft. 72, the last 72. We've talked a lot about the first 72. How about the last 72? Well, as I look at this draft, and again, I, I think this is a pretty damn competitive league. Really good players, and, I, and a lot of people listening to this podcast, I mean, I think most of the people in this league actually do listen to this podcast. The players in that last 72 that were successful enough to say, this is a person that should have been on a roster for pretty much the entire season, or at least when they were playing. Boyan Bogdanovich, who, by the way, was the first pick of those last 72. He was pick number 109. So, yes, there's going to be a slight bias. Uh, Maxi Kleba, who gained prominence when more so when Dwight Powell went down. So there's an asterisk there. Terrence Ross, who also has a little bit of an asterisk. 
Paul Millsap, he was good when he was healthy this year, but he wasn't healthy that much. So, mm, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie, same kind of thing. Good sometimes, but not great. So in that first 12, I would say basically Boyan Bogdanovich, and maybe you could say Paul Millsap. Next 12, Kevin Herter, good when those other wings were out. Derek Rose, we'll give him some props. He was good anytime he was playing, and he played most of the year. OG Ananobi, he kind of went in and out of favor, but generally decent. And Jalen Brown, who was uh, a little bit of a post-type guy, but also made some pretty big strides this year. So that round, I would say Derek Rose, Jalen Brown, and OG Ananobi get my nod, with the sort of honorable mentions going to Kevin Herter, Patrick Beverly, who wasn't healthy and then found himself in a timeshare, and Derek White, who also was sort of dangling around at the edges. Round 12 of this draft, and bear with me on this. I know it's it, this is sort of a pedantic exercise. I've, we've been down that road before. Um, round 12 had Nerlens Noel and Evan Fournier as really the only two guys, so one out of every six was successful. Round 13... Colin Sexton, Davis Bertans, Andrew Wiggins, and Dennis Schroeder. So four out of 12, a little bit better hit right in round 13. Round 14, DeAndre Jordan, Norman Powell, Will Barton were the three names that hit, three out of 12. And the last round, and I know we're getting deep into the muck now, round 15, Marcus Morris was, uh, oh, and Rashawn Holmes, who unfortunately missed a bunch of time being hurt, but you have to consider him a hit. I would. If he had played, he would have been one of the biggest hits of the entire draft. So two out of 12 in that last one. So we're fluctuating here between anywhere from about two to four out of 12 players per round in that last 72. If we want to average it out and say three, you're talking about 18 out of 72 guys that really did belong on a fantasy roster basically from day one to day whatever the crap it was when we shut this thing down. So how do we fine-tune it? How do we tweak our draft strategy so that we end up with those guys? By the way, I'm not afraid to admit that I think I did pretty well at, at isolating those guys this year. In, out of those names I mentioned, I had Boyan Bogdanovich in this draft. Derek White was another one, so that was generally a miss. Kent Bazemore was a miss. Dennis Schroeder was a hit. DeAndre Jordan was a uh, sort of hit. And then Rashawn Holmes would have been a massive hit. So I had a pretty good last 72 in this draft. But how did, and I don't always. This one happens to be a, a more of a success story for my teams. But how did this one work well where other ones might not? That's where we need to really home in on things. It's a combination of factors. For one, you got to look at the guys that I, we, were passing up to end up with the names that we did. We passed up, and I'll, I'm going to rattle these names off really fast. We passed up on, in round 10, Kuzma, Alex Len, RJ Barrett, Kelly Olenek, uh, Kleba, Ross, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Millsap, Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie. Those are guys were passed up on. Uh, next one, passed up on Herter, uh, Beverly. Um, I, I mean, we... Obviously passed up on Jalen Brown, but he was a big hit. Passed up on Rudy Gay, um, P.J. Tucker, Tylee Harrow, Thaddeus Young, Jarrett Culver, Dario Sharch. Passed up on those guys. 
who are the other misses that we we passed up on in round 12? Well, we we drafted Kent Bazemore, and he was a general miss. Passed up on uh, P.J. Washington, Jeremy Grant, Nick Batum, Rui Hachimura, Danny Green, D.J. Augustine, Willie Cauley-Stein, who was actually decent for a little while. Um, Eric Gordon in that one. And in the last three rounds, and we'll just do this really quick because I know it's getting boring, but I, I thought it was important to look at the guys we didn't take. Guys we didn't take that stunk. Cody Zeller, Darius Garland, uh, Jermichael Green, Tyus Jones, Harrison Barnes, Matisse Thybul, Landry Shamit, Chetty Osman, Mo Bamba, Dwayne Bacon, Goran Dragic, George Hill, Monty Morris, KCP, Jakob Pertl, Rajon Rondo, Malik Monk, and then uh, round 15, I mean, you're just, these are these are absolute dregs players, so I don't know that we need to talk about who we didn't draft. But the reason I went over all of those names is now you guys can see, okay, how did we end up on the guys we did draft? It's a combination of key factors. Key factor number one is, is this person going to play a bunch? Now, this is not a, a catch-all because some of these guys didn't play giant minutes but still managed to have some value. But is Boyan Bogdanovich going to play a bunch? Yes. Is Derek White going to play a bunch? The answer is no. So I don't know why I drafted that guy. What about Kent Bazemore? I thought the answer was yes there. He did, just didn't pan out. Dennis Schroeder? Yes. DeAndre Jordan? Maybe. Rashawn Holmes? Hopefully. So a few of those, we were abiding by it, and a few of those we weren't. Factor, key factor number two. What kind of fantasy stat set does this particular player have? And this, I think, is more key for who we avoided than who we actually drafted. We avoided guys like Kyle Kuzma and uh, Alex, Len, Alex Len and Joe Harris and uh, Jarrett Culver and Rudy Gay. The list goes on and on. You avoid the guys who don't have the fantasy stat set to support value this late in a draft because the only way you get away with that is if you are playing a ton of minutes so like pj tucker has a kind of a clunkers fantasy stat set but we knew he was going to play like 37 38 minutes a game he got off to a really good start this year before westbrook ramped up his usage and that blew everything up but still he's an example of okay this person's going to play a bunch even if we don't really like their fantasy stat set so there's an opportunity to perhaps get into the mix that's why he was on the list of guys that i considered But a lot of the names that we dodged were guys that didn't have the fantasy stat set. The third key factor is, where's is there an explosion element here? That factors in with a guy like a Nerlens Noel, who I didn't get, but obviously managed to do a lot with very little. DeAndre Jordan did a fair amount without seeing massive minutes. Rashawn Holmes was a guy we knew could do a lot without seeing massive minutes. So you put all these things together... And I don't know that you need to give a hit on all three, because if you find a hit on all three, then you've probably found a guy that was drafted prior to the final 72. The last factor, and this comes down to fantasy stat set, it's sort of like a corollary to number two, is, is this a person that's done it before? And that worked in favor of a guy like a Derrick Rose, in favor of a guy like Evan Fournier, in favor of a guy like Dennis Schroeder, more so for 8-cat than 9, but you get the idea. For a guy like DeAndre Jordan, that worked in his favor. There are a number of players that fall under that heading. Have they done it before? If so, 
they get a little check mark in the positive column. So how do you then look at those guys and make your call? Well, how do you, who do you put in front of who else at that point? And this, I think, is where I probably screwed things up in this particular draft, even though I ended up getting a bunch of the guys that I wanted because there were key players in rounds 10, 11, and 12 that went that I didn't get, probably because I was waiting these guys out kind of the wrong way. The final 72. That's where we're focused in on right now. Now, obviously, the process begins by figuring out who's actually going to be hanging around past number pick, past pick number 108. You have to be pretty confident that somebody's going to fall that far. But once you get into that bucket, you start to see players get picked from all over the map. And I honestly don't know what a lot of these other teams are thinking when they take a guy like, I don't know, like a DJ Augustine. Like, there was no way he was going to sustain fantasy value. He's literally never done it before, and he's played big minutes at times in his career. His, his stat set just doesn't support it. But that's helpful for us because it allows us to get closer to the guys that we're willing to sort of take a flyer on. So what I want us to do next year to remember as we go into next season's fantasy draft is when you look at those guys that in all of your mock drafts are falling into that 105-110 range. And don't stop paying attention. Even if some of the other people in your mock draft are and, and perhaps that's a reason why mock drafts might not be that useful, but pro drafts are. It's where you can look at the analysts from HoopBall and Basketball Monster and Roto World and wherever else. Uh, of course, our ITL guys. What, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not trying to leave anybody out on purpose here. Everybody reads into things too much. I'm just saying you take your analyst drafts because every, the analysts take those seriously to the last round. So they're going to go 150, 160 deep. And you see who's getting scooped up in that neighborhood. And you plan accordingly. Who are these guys you want that are expecting to see big minutes or big usage or big storyline, whatever it might be? And there are always going to be some surprises. Uh, I should mention Norman Powell was someone who worked out great, but he didn't get thrust into it until everybody else got hurt. And then he just grabbed the usage and never really let go. But there are some ones that looking back feel plainly obvious and we didn't and they weren't going into it why is that the case what about a guy like a will barton did we think he was going to lose his job maybe we knew dennis schroeder he was a hoop ball guy this year so that one was not exactly a surprise why didn't anybody want anything to do with marcus morris we knew he was going to new york to play the storyline told us so derrick rose went to detroit to play the storyline told us so these are things we need to be much more explicit with the guys we're taking in the last 72. It can't just be a hunt and peck at the last minute. It can't be who's falling at this point because there isn't that element. You have to find your guys. Make your list of 12, 13 dudes that you think you can get in this range. And probably they're going to dry up by the end. What do you do in that spot? It doesn't matter. You're going to probably drop your 15th round guy in most instances anyway. But make your list, stick with it, and remember those four key factors. Are they going to play a bunch? Have they done it before? So what does their fantasy stat set reveal? What's the upside? Like, could they potentially grow into a better fantasy game? And what's the storyline? 
You put those things together, and I think we can do a better job of hitting on a couple of guys. If you get two solid dudes out of your last 72, that's awesome. Like, what if you ended up with Evan Fournier and Norman Powell late in your draft? That's pretty damn good. That's enough to take your top four team to the top three or better. And next week, we'll talk about what to do with the previous 36, 72 through 108, an area where there is more success. But what kind of success are you hunting for there? Are you looking for a guy to meet his ADP? Are you looking for a guy to wallop his ADP? That'll be next Monday when we talk about episodes 7 and 8 of The Last Dance as well. Tomorrow, uh, most likely back into the team-by-team breakdowns, we'll continue our tour of the Southeast Division unless we talk to a pro. And I'll know that not that long before you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoopball presentation. I am Dan Vespers. Hit me up on Twitter. We'll talk last dance. We'll talk uh, late draft strategy if you so desire. I know it's a weird time to talk fantasy sports because we don't know when they're coming back, but damn it, we're going to be ready. Talk to you tomorrow, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.